0: Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stallberg
1: and Steve Magnus. Brad, what's going on today?
0: Oh man, not a ton. Really excited about today's conversation. Stoked to be sharing it with the Growth EQ audience. It's a less traditional guest in discussion than we normally have, but one of my favorites that we've had to date.
1: Yeah, this this is really fascinating. So you know, Give it a listen. Stay in there. Before we get to our guests, don't forget, check out our Patreon group. What do you get? You get monthly book clubs where we bring in authors to discuss their books and go deep. You get this podcast a week early. You can be part of a monthly mastermind group and all sorts of exclusive content that Brad and I provide. Join our little club, our tribe, patreon.com slash the growth equation. So today's guest is
0: Dave Pell. He is the creator, writer, executive editor, producer, one man shop of Next Draft, which is arguably the most popular newsletter on the internet. And Dave's got a new book coming out that chronicles the last year although you'll hear him say really the last few years of covering the news and all of the challenges that come with that. So we talk a lot about that, but we also talk about Dave's own mental health, some of his battles with chronic pain and depression, how he stays hopeful covering the news, where the news used to be versus where it's now, where he thinks it's headed, democracy, how worried we all should be about what's happening in the country, um, and on and on and on. So whether you want the inside baseball of newsletter publishing, whether you want to know how someone that spends four hours a day on the internet keeps their brain in decent shape, whether you're here for the tips and tricks on consistently producing a great in-depth product five days a week, every day for over the last decade, um, this conversation will not disappoint. It runs a little bit longer than our prior conversations, and again, that is because um, we just touched on so many really interesting things. So with no further ado, here is the Growth EQ with the one and only Dave Pell, Managing Editor of The Internet. So I'm gonna start today's conversation with a little story. Uh, Around four, four and a half, maybe even five years ago, uh, I had long been writing for Outside Magazine, and I had some readership. You know, people would read my stories, Um, nothing too major. And I wrote this story called, Why Do Rich People Love Endurance Sports? And I got a note from my editor saying, holy shit, like, you know, who did you send this to? The amount of traffic we're getting on this story is insane. And we couldn't figure it out for a long time. And then sure enough, this guy named Dave Pell links to it in his Next Draft newsletter. And um, I had no idea who Dave was. I had no idea what Next Draft was. So obviously, I was stoked that a story that I worked pretty hard on was getting read all over the internet. But I was even more stoked to discover Next Draft. Because for those that are not familiar, it is a newsletter that is basically an algorithm for the internet. It somehow, and we'll get into this deeply today, cuts through all of the stuff out there to deliver the 10 things that you need to know. Um, it's absolutely a wonderful resource, and that's why we're so stoked today to have the creator, editor, producer, writer, the one-man show with, I imagine, some some help behind the scenes, um, of Next Draft. So Dave, welcome to the podcast. We're stoked to have you here. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on.
2: Yeah, the fact that it was hard to figure out where the traffic came from is uh, one of the bummers about doing newsletters. It's often uh, not apparent to the people looking at the stats where the traffic comes from. But uh, one of the one of the many flaws in the newsletter game, but most of them are good.
0: So let's start there. Let's start with the newsletter game. You know, we're a broad podcast, but our listeners do like some inside baseball. So, when did you first start Next Draft? Because this isn't like one of the, you know, fourth, fifth wave newsletter fads. You've been doing this forever.
2: Yeah, no, I've seen the rise and fall and the rise and rise and rise of the newsletter uh, many times in my newsletter writing career. I actually, uh, before Next Draft, wrote a newsletter called DaveNetics where I did something similar to Next Draft, but only for tech. So I wrote the top 10 tech stories of the day. And I described them and linked off for more, um, you know, for the full article. And at the time, I was an angel investor in internet startups. This was during the first boom in the late 90s. And But my passion was writing. So I wanted to try to mix those two things. So I started sending that out just to the CEOs and Uh, other employees at companies that I invested in basically to save them the time from having to look, look it up themselves or keep track of competitors or what news was in their space. So, uh, you know, that went out to a few people and then somebody wrote an article about it and it sort of got pretty popular, um, at one point I had about 50,000 subscribers and almost all of them were newsletter professionals. I mean, sorry, all of them were internet professionals. And at the time, there were probably only about 50,000 internet professionals. So it was pretty, uh, pretty blanketed uh, user base, basically or readership. Um, but when the bust came, I uh, sort of felt like I was writing a daily obituary column. So uh, I And also, I had other interests. I just sort of wrote about tech because I had a built-in audience of these people I invested in and were sort of obligated to subscribe. So I switched eventually to all news, and that was the first iteration of Next Draft. Um, I've always been a news-obsessed person and been more interested in other topics than just tech. So that was fun, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I stopped, and then probably about 10 years ago or so, I decided i actually a friend of mine, uh, said, Hey, you should bring next draft back. And I thought, well, we have Twitter. Now we have Facebook. People are so overwhelmed by the stream of news that they get. Why would they want one more thing that has news? And he said, well, no, that's the reason they need it because they're overwhelmed. They need somebody to go through it all for them and narrow it down. And that really uh, light went off on my head during that. And I decided to uh, relaunch it. Um, At the very beginning, I was trying to be exhaustive and try to think, I'm your only news source, so I want to give everything you need to know that day, even stuff I don't necessarily find particularly fascinating or I don't have anything interesting to say about or funny to say about. Uh, And that went for a little while. And then at one point, I realized, no, this is really more of a modern day column. And what this is, is what I'm interested in. And it's really a personality-driven product. And trying to be exhaustive is just going to exhaust people. So once I narrowed it down to 10 things that I found interesting and made it more personality driven, it sort of really started taking off. So um, yeah, so it's been going for quite a while in one iteration or another, probably since the earliest days of the internet.
1: So you said something really interesting, Dave, where, you know, what I'm interested in, and often what happens like as you grow your audience in whatever field like you get pulled to you know what you think other people are interested in or what you think they'll like or what you think will get the clicks has like your interest and your passion and your like clarity on what's important to you always kind of been at the forefront and how do you keep it at the forefront as your audience grows
2: Yeah I think it's just um you know I I really think of it almost A newsletter is being almost more like a radio talk show host or a radio talk show than um, other forms of writing in a way. It's sort of a club that starts to develop over time. Yes, one person has the mic all the time like a radio show. But you start to establish certain lingo and certain patterns and certain things that I knew he was going to say this or I can't wait to see what – this guy's going to say about that. You know, I mean, I feel like, you know, with the Kyrie Irving story about vaccines or, you know, pop culture things, I'm, I'm, I am wake up and think like, what's Howard Stern going to say about this today? But I know the characters on Howard Stern and I know his vibe, and I know his general style. And I think the more you can have that in a newsletter, the better. So I don't really feel a lot of pressure to um, give people what they want, really. I just think the product is better if it's more personality driven more my takes more what i think of course there's going to be people for whom that's not their vibe you know and so they'll unsubscribe and move on to somebody else but i think um like a radio show like a stand-up comedian you want to do your best thing and then find the people that connect to that best thing as opposed to doing something that's a little bit lower than your best thing and try to get a better audience, a bigger audience. So I don't find it too hard to do that. No, I, I, I don't think of a necessarily a huge audience when I'm writing Next Draft. I sort of just think of myself and maybe a few people. And, um, I think of it as an ongoing discussion also.
0: How big is the audience?
2: Uh, it's about, uh, 130,000 subscribers on the newsletter, uh, it's available in a lot of other forms, so it gets a lot of reads on an app. There's an uh, iPhone app. It's funny because when I was doing Next Draft in, you know, say a decade ago, first getting it started again, almost everybody I asked for testimonials from uh, said, even though your inbox is overloaded. I still suggest you sign up for Next Draft, even though email is the bane of my existence. I still like Next Draft. And it's sort of a weird irony since newsletters and email have sort of come back into vogue now. But because of that, I realized, wow, this is a weird uphill struggle I have putting my work out in a medium that people have a negative feeling about. So back then I decided I'd just make it available however people want it and wherever they are. So there's a blog version. uh, There's an app version. Uh, there's a Substack version that I launched recently. Um, yeah, you name it. Wherever, there's actually a Firefox add-in uh, that's probably a pretty cool way to read it. If people have Firefox, you can my newsletter loads in the sidebar, and then you can read the articles in the main window. So pretty much any format that people want it in, uh, I'll give it to them that way. I'm I'm definitely medium agnostic.
0: Yeah. So I've I've heard you discuss that you've worked with some really great independent developers, and you've got a few close friends that are constantly texting you stories and whatnot throughout the day. But um, it seems like you've kept this thing intentionally small. My guess is that if you wanted to, you could have cashed this out. You could have had a whole production team. You could have a YouTube channel, whatever it is. Has that been intentional and, and if so, talk to us about how you've been able to stay focused on really creating the work and, you know, as a derivative of that, I imagine like the life that you want um, by keeping this such a one-man show.
2: Yeah. I mean, I go back and forth on that. I, I invest in startups also. And I also, you know, especially in the early days, everybody who would launch a newsletter would sort of call me and get my advice or whatever, and then I would see them become these massive businesses, you know, like the skim and uh, a lot of other ones. Um, But yeah, I, I sort of separate the two things in my life, the startup part, which is really financially driven, of course. And um, it's about, getting big and, uh, working with a lot of people. And then there's this part of my life, which is the creative part of my life. And that I really don't want to have to answer to anybody. I don't really want to work with anybody. I just want to wake up and do it. Um, it's interesting. I, um, as you guys know, have been working on a book that's coming out on November 9th. And that was, even that was a pretty, um, uh, interesting re-entry into group, Activities, even though, of course, I'm the main actor in writing a book. You still have uh, agents and publishers and editors and PR people and marketing people. And all that stuff was, uh, you know, definitely took some getting used to for me because in this area of my creativity, I'm just used to doing it myself. Uh, I don't answer to anybody. I don't have to think about, am I going to get edited? Um, I make the decisions. I sort of pull the trigger Uh, I have been really lucky that I've had some freelancers or they actually have full-time jobs, but they work on my stuff on the side when I need it that have sort of built me the tools to have a very professional uh, publishing system and a very professional look and feel for my product. Um, So because of that, I'm able to have the benefits of a big company in some ways, but I have the freedom of an indie. Uh, For example, my I have a wordpress a custom wordpress installation that a guy named andrew norcross built for me and basically i told him exactly how i worked at the time and i said i don't want to change a single thing about my workflow and he basically just built a back end and then gave me a form on the web that i just pasted in what i've been doing what i had been doing for the decade before exactly as i've always been doing it and then he parses it all and with one button i push that content to an app to a newsletter, to the web, to a Firefox sidebar, to Apple News. Um, So it's probably as good as the average small newspaper, honestly, my publishing system. And it's on WordPress VIP. uh, So it's totally scalable. Uh, Matt Mullenweg at WordPress has always been a really nice supporter and he's given me both sponsored a newsletter and given me free access to VIP. So I actually operate from a desktop of a, a small publishing company, even though ultimately on a day-to-day basis, it's just me.
1: Oh, this is fascinating. So there's, there's a lot of things that I want to get into there, or that we could get into. Um, but it sounds like to me, you've like compartmentalized your life in terms of startup and next draft. What what it, and it you know listening it it's almost like next draft has this professional side but it also fulfills this like it's almost like your hobby, right?
2: Yeah, no. People ask me whenever people ask me what my hobbies are. That's always a tough one because it's true that my hobby sort of is uh, going on the internet and checking out stories and making jokes about them. And uh, my most of my job during the day for Next Draft is doing the same thing. So it's not a too healthy of an existence, but it is the truth. Um, so yeah, ne- Next Draft is, I-, I do, in theory, when people ask me what I do, I say I spend half the day writing and half the day uh, investing in startups. But the truth is, it's like 99%, the writing and the creativity. And if I got one shot at you, I'd much rather have you as a subscriber than uh, hear your pitch for your startup. So it's not really half and half. I mean, the writing part is definitely the focus for me. Uh, that's what I spend my nights thinking about. That's what I spend four or five hours a day working on, uh, steady. So it's different. I, I get a lot out of the startup stuff and learn a ton, and it's been you know really fun. And I've been lucky enough to co-invest with people that uh, are okay with me branding myself first as a writer. Uh, because that does cost deal flow, obviously. If I branded myself every day in Next Draft as a uh, investor, I would get a lot more deals, and you know the schmooze factor would be a lot higher. But I don't want to do that, so I've been really lucky that that support from people that I co invest with uh, has actually given me the freedom to do this every day, what I want to be doing basically.
0: So let's hop into. Your ability to be consistent. It's pretty remarkable. Um, I, yes, I'm a Dave Pell Next Draft fanboy and I'm a professional writer. So, like, I, I say this and I mean it. Your stuff is consistently really good. Inconsistently is like every weekday, period. How do you do it? And, and i like we can get down into the nuts and bolts like what supports your ability to show up and consistently produce novel fun original writing and then also to to not have your brain explode from so much time on the internet finding these, these links and we'll get way into your book later on. So don't worry. And like that, particularly the past year and a half, which has been a total clusterfuck, but even zooming out prior to the past year and a half, how do you, how do you stay so consistent?
2: Yeah. Well, the, the first answer is an emotional answer that I'm just a narcissist and I'm addicted to the dopamine hit of pressing publish. Um, you know, the second the internet launched, basically as soon as Andreessen put out the mosaic browser you know, I put up a personal site and started writing on there. So before the internet, uh, when I was college-aged about, uh, I used to write up 30-page diatribes about what my ideas were and what was going on in my life, and I'd bind them at the local Kinko's, which is now FedEx, and uh, send them out to a bunch of uh, friends that didn't necessarily subscribe voluntarily. Um, so for me, the internet just fed that, Uh, already budding drug addiction that I had and made it like 10 times more powerful. I sort of went from Red Bull to crack overnight. Um, So I'm addicted to it. Um, It's not altruistic. It's not, uh, you know, some hard work in the minds I'm doing. I need it. Uh, The second part of it, that's more probably um, strategic or functional and might be beneficial to other people is that the, The web gets a bad rap these days for a lot of things, and rightly so, but one of the beautiful things about the web uh, is that you can create tools that match your skills and passions and allow yourself to express those uh, seamlessly. So Next Draft is really a reflection of what I'm best at doing. Like I am a news addict already, and I was before the internet. I love having material to counterpunch off of and come up with takes or jokes or um, creative ways to share information quickly. That's like my sweet spot in terms of writing, uh, in terms of my skills. So um, what I did was basically create a product that reflected what I'm good at instead of having to adjust my skills. to fit an existing product. So that was, for me, the secret sauce of the internet. Um, So, yeah, I just do what I would normally do and think how I normally think, but I've created a suite of tools that let me uh, push that out into the world in a product that reflects those skills. So it's almost cheating in a way. Um, I didn't take an existing gig and say, okay, I'd probably match up with this. So now what do I have to get better at or whatever? I said, here's the only weird, incredibly screwed up, fucked up, insane things that I'm into. How can I make that a product? So that's why it's easy for me to do every day because it's a completely natural exercise. But at the core of it all is I need to push that publish button. I need to believe that it makes a difference if I publish that day. I need to believe in my little narcissistic, uh, ego maniacal world that when I'm on vacation with my family in Japan, that I have to wake up at three in the morning and make sure people get a, at least three issues that week or whatever. There's a pretty good chance none of that is real, but that keeps me pumping it out.
1: All right, wait, we we need to dive into this because this is this is fascinating. Um you have this clarity, right? Where you created your own match quality. You said, I'm not going to find the thing, I'm just going to create the match, right? But at the same time, like you're talking about this like addiction, this obsession. Like, how do you how do you keep going without like harboring maybe all of the negative sides of that addictive, obsessive? quality
2: uh oh i i i do harbor them all i think my family would attest to that but uh i just think it's fun you know i mean i do it's a drug but it it probably is not as self-destructive as some other drugs you know i i do it look I, i i know that uh you know they People say you're never going to be lying on your deathbed and think, uh, you know, I wish I could get one more tweet in, you know. But if you were guaranteed that tweet was going to go really viral, you know, maybe it would be different. I mean, of course, you wouldn't want one more disappointing tweet. But, um, yeah, I, I I just really do like it. I love the being in the game of uh, the discussion, I guess, the broader discussion. Um, I I definitely do waste too much time on it and um, especially Twitter or social media and it's hard not to define your uh, self by it or let your ego, it's sort of like investing in stocks. You know, when the market is good, you feel great about yourself. When the market goes down, you're like, oh my God, I'm the biggest idiot in the world, you know, and that's sort of like social media, right? When like somebody says, oh, you're funny, you're like, oh man, I'm really, you know, making people have a brighter day and when people say, I would like to murder you and then cut you up into a thousand pieces and rape each piece, which I've gotten once in an email. Then you think like, maybe this isn't the best use of my time, but ultimately I just, I have fun with that publish button. Um, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a columnist, you know? So uh, there used to be, you guys are probably too young, but there used to be the show called eight is enough where the dad uh, was like a local newspaper columnist. And one day he'd write about some big broad, national issue. And the next day he would write about something weird that his son did. Uh, And I thought, man, that's, that's it, man. I just want to be able to wake up in the morning and write about whatever the hell I want to write about. And uh, I do get to do that in a certain way now. Uh, So yeah, it's just, I do have fun doing it. You know, I could obviously stop at any time if I wanted to, but I don't really have the desire to.
0: There's something really refreshing about your like authenticity and self-awareness. I think often a lot of people that write and hit publish will tell these grandiose stories that they're doing it to make the world a better place and to help other people. And I've always thought that if you've got a byline, you've got a bigger ego than most people without a byline. Um, and I certainly know that's true about myself as a writer. I think that. My addiction to relevance, which I also have, I think I probably just get more hungover than you from the drug. So I spend less time doing it. Like the main reason that I personally have constraints around spending time on the internet, trying to build a following, all of that, isn't because I think it's like a inherently good or bad thing. It's because if I do it for too long, I start to feel like shit. Steve and I always joke when we launch a book, like there's only so much promotion that either of us can do before it feels like we've just been like on a crazy bender and we need a hot shower. So, have you built up a tolerance for this? Do you think that you're just wired differently on the weekends? Are you like doing a digital Sabbath and taking that hot shower? Um, that's the interesting thing to me is like how do you have the capacity to ride those waves of internet relevance without completely burning out making yourself sick
2: yeah no i i definitely get down uh at times you know probably about the things uh that other people do you know about not having as big an impact uh having an audience level that remains flat for a while and you're like what's the point if it's not getting bigger it's getting stale um You know, you don't get a ton of reaction actually in the newsletter game. People think that your inbox is like totally filled, but most people don't even know that if they hit reply, you're there. um, And they're surprised if you get back to them. So it's sometimes like you're throwing stuff into a void, you know, and that can be a bummer um, for sure. Um, But it's not the, the process itself doesn't get me down. The results sometimes do. Um, And You know, you mentioned book promotion. I mean, I agree 100% with you on that. That's, uh, you know, begging people, getting ghosted. Um, You know, that process is so brutal, asking for favors. And it's actually the opposite uh, of what Next Draft is in a way. Next Draft is like, I got a blank sheet. I do it. It's going to get done. And I press send. And I really don't give a shit what anybody else thinks or has to say about it. I don't have to kiss anybody's ass. There's maybe two or three people I really care if they were either offended or disappointed in a take of mine. And as long as I'm not pissing those people off, one of whom is my mom, um, I I really don't worry about it much. So, um, yeah, I just feel it's it's a separate thing, you know, maybe it's like exercises. I know you write so much about that personal improvement and exercise and stuff. And and I actually suck at that being consistent about that, even though I do love it. And when I go hiking, I get many more ideas about writing and I feel so awesome about myself, but I have a much harder time being consistent about it. Um, but next draft. Yeah. I don't really feel there's, there's the downer part of it, which is, is it being received As well as I want? Am I as popular as I want to be? Uh, Do I feel like I'm getting the credit that I deserve? That kind of stuff, you know, the more unhealthy aspects of creativity. But on the actual, just waking up writing and thinking, okay, uh, Facebook is deciding to rename itself. Who's going to have the best take on that today? All right, let's go. Game on. Give me a cup of coffee. I got to have the best headline today because everybody's leading with this. Let's go. I just think that's, uh, it's fun, you know? So I think it it probably is like a little bit like people who, my sister is like addicted to her run, you know? No matter where she travels around the world, if we're in Venice, she's going running. I'm like, well, don't trip into a canal. There's not that many places to run here, but she won't miss it, you know? It's like her thing. And, and I guess Next Draft is like that for me. So the the actual process is not uh, sort of a downer for me, and it's a little bit separate from all those other internet-y things. Um, and I am lucky that I have one, one friend that I – I don't really do Next Draft with anybody or get any help, but I have one friend who always sort of proofreads a few of my important blurbs and uh, sort of I test some jokes on or whatever. Uh, His name is Rob Dunn, sort of a childhood friend of mine. But we're always on instant messenger or uh, telegram together, chatting about this and that, about next draft of the day's news. So it's nice that I sort of have this virtual office mate to keep me going.
1: Love it. I definitely resonate with your uh, your sister I think you said uh, on the addicted to running thing. So I think we all have our own things, but I'm I'm curious. You know, you mentioned like the downtime. So it isn't part of the process but part of the results. Like how do you how do you navigate those downtimes so that you can get back to the work, the process that you enjoy?
2: Yeah, I mean I don't know. I'm like a middle-aged Jewish male, so my existence is a downtime in a way, you know? So I'm always sort of bummed and disappointed. Um, You know, my dad was like this wild success uh, who came to America with nothing and built this real estate empire and was revered as a hero in the Jewish community for fighting with the partisans and the Holocaust and all this. And he was constantly bummed about his lack of achievements. So, Uh, I think that's just my natural state, you know, to which drives my wife crazy. Um, But, um, yeah, I think that's how I deal with it. It's just a natural state for me in a way. It doesn't feel that foreign. I uh, Maybe it's my motivation. I must get some pleasure out of feeling like this is all worthless and I'm a joke and an imbecile and why am I wasting my time on this and I've wasted my whole life on pushing this crap out into the internet. But I do feel that way about, um, you know, basically 23 hours and 59 minutes a day. And then one minute I load it into the form and press publish again. So I wish I had some good tricks, you know, to, um, for people that do creative things to deal with that. I think it's just part of the process, you know, it's, uh, I like to say, like, just don't feel bad about feeling bad, you know. It's like sort of when you get depressed, if you've ever gone through a depression, like the first thing that happens is you start um, hating yourself for being weak or hating yourself for going through this and looking at other people and think, why can't I be normal like that person or whatever? Um, And that's like the worst thing you can do at that time, right? Everybody feels down. Everybody has imposter syndrome. Everybody wonders if they're spending their day the right way or whatever, so if you can just accept that it's part of your process and part of your daily life as opposed to hammering yourself even more for feeling that way um you know i think that's good it might be i think for creative people it might be difficult for a spouse or a friend or more positive minded uh people or people who use positivity to motivate themselves to listen to you whine about it. So it's better to keep the whining internal, I think, because people are like, wait, you have 130,000 readers and everybody I know keeps saying, oh, Dave's newsletter is so great. What are you whining about it? And they saying it's worthless. Don't do it if it's worthless. You know, it's like, no, you don't understand. I'm just getting warmed up for the gig today. You know, this is just how I roll, you know? So, um, yeah, I don't know if that feeling is that negative. I think as, as long as you are able to get up and do what you hoped you would do Um, Just don't hammer yourself for whatever it takes to get that done, including just, you know, look, there's going to be like a 12 year old who has more followers and more retweets than me. There's, you know, going to be somebody with a perfect midriff that has 5 million Instagram followers because of it, you know. So, you you know, you're going to get ghosted by people you think should respect you and blah, blah, blah. So. It's just like part of the deal. I think it's it's like a sport. It really is, you know. You look, you're there's going to be days when the hill kicks your ass, you know. So, you know, the fun is waking up the next day and thinking like, oh well, I'll try the goddamn hill again, you know. One of these days, uh, you know, maybe there will be an NFL recruiter somewhere to say like, hey man, what is the guy with your skills doing on this hill by himself, you know? So you just motivate yourself and get it going again.
0: Love it. I think that's so. There's so many important threads to pull on in in what you just said, but I think this notion of um, not letting the arrow hit you twice. So like, not that second arrow is often like the judgment or that I shouldn't be feeling this way. Um, and it'd be really easy, you know, on a day that you're bummed for having only a hundred thirty thousand subscribers to get really down on yourself for being bummed, like, who am I to be bummed? That's so many, but it's that like second, third, fourth, fifth arrow that, that are often worse than the first. So you mentioned depression. I hope it's all right. If, if we ask, have you ever experienced clinical depression?
2: Um, I'm not sure if I'd call it clinical depression, but I had a pain syndrome about a decade ago uh, for, it lasted for about five years. That might actually be the topic of my next book. And that pain syndrome caused me to be pretty sleepless for uh, months at a time. And uh, so that exhaustion, which I think is very related to uh, feelings of depression and anxiety especially, uh, sort of sent me into a pretty bad tailspin. So um, yeah, it was a, a physical and mental depression, I would say. So yeah, I have experienced that. And I have experienced that feeling, you know, I when people get depressed, I always Tell them, you know, and I think it's the same when you have barriers to your work or what you want to get done, you know, is that you have to think of, um, a depression is like a demon and it's trying to get you to do things so that it can thrive. Sort of like COVID is doing with our bodies, you know, it's mutating in order to succeed and its goal is to make you feel like shit. So if, if the demon is telling you lay in bed all day today, uh. And feel really bad about yourself, and be hard on yourself for being such a loser that you can't achieve anything. Then just get up and walk, just to say, "No, I'm going to fight the demon." Um, if the demon is telling you, "Don't, don't do your creative work today," you know, just do it because you want to push back against it, and keep it from mutating again. You know, I think a lot of times people think of mental uh, issues differently from physical issues. Uh so if you break your leg you never go like god damn you're such an idiot for having a broken bone and why aren't you racing in that race today you know it's like oh man my body let me down and i've got to figure out a way to bide my time until i can get it back but when your brain does that to you you're like oh man i'm just such a piece of garbage and i'm just going to do what this thing makes me feel like doing you know instead of saying no i have a cold and i'm going to do the things that make colds better i'm uh have COVID, I'm going to take the drug cocktail that makes COVID go away, you know? And so with depression, it's a little bit more tricky because of course there are drugs, but in terms of the stuff you can do yourself, um, it's a little more tricky because it's inside of you telling you do these, do these things that are negative for you. But I, I I think when I've talked to people about it that have gone through it, I, I feel like it's sometimes effective to try to separate that thing and make it seem more like a germ uh, uh, or a virus that you have to fight against.
0: Yeah, for sure. I've had a therapist say, you know, do the opposite. And that's really good advice. So whatever depression, anxiety is telling you, do the opposite.
2: Yeah. I mean, one time I, at the bottom of the barrel at, during this experience for me, um, I thought I was having like a psychotic break and i Every now and then, like every few days, I would literally like curl up on the floor uh, in the fetal position and like be crying and just like feeling like I was going crazy and couldn't function. I was also on a lot of uh, pain and other anxiety drugs, so that was a bad mix. But I told my shrink at the time about that, and he goes, "Okay, Dave, listen to me. Next time you find yourself doing that, just get up and stop doing it because it's ridiculous. You're not going so psychotic." you're not having a psychotic break, you're having a pain syndrome and you're short on sleep. So just get back up. Right. And I'm like, all right. So then I just stopped doing it. You know, um, I mean, I was paying psychoanalysis prices for behaviorist uh, advice, but i still took it, uh, took it to heart. You know, So I, I do think sometimes that's not, it, depression is not as simple as that, but sometimes a lot of things you're going through are actually that simple. It's like, hey, every time I do this, I feel good. So maybe I should just do this right now. You know, maybe I won't feel good, but I'll feel a little less bad. And uh, tomorrow we'll knock it another rung down, you know? I mean, it's interesting, especially when we talked about exercise and depression, there's so many connections between moving your body. And, you know, it's so silly that we even say there's a mind-body connection. I mean, your nervous system is, is your body. I mean, you know. I usually say like your mind-body connection is your neck, but the truth is, it's like everything is a mind-body connection. So I've always been surprised that there's not more overlap between mental therapy. And uh, I have a friend who's a shrink and we're always talking about that, that there should be clinics where you go and you're working on your depression and you're also doing 15 minutes on the treadmill, a little bit of time in the weight room, going on outdoor hikes. I mean, everybody knows the things that generally make you feel better when you're down. Um, but like I said before, the demon wants you not to do those things. The demon wants you on the floor, giving up and thinking you're crazy, you know?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I agree. I think that that connection and the the nervousness, it's all the same things. Um, But what I noticed there is like, it's almost like you name it, you categorize it, you make sense of it so that you then can take action on it, right? Yeah.
2: I mean, this stuff that I'm saying is obviously easier to advise somebody else that's in a deep depression. You know, when when I was in my state, I was like at my friend's house that's a shrink laying on his couch, you know, four days a week saying, I don't want to live anymore. So it's not like I'm saying this stuff is easy. But it's good to think, I think it's good to think about this stuff when you haven't been in a depression. I wish people taught about this stuff before so you knew what was coming. I mean, even my friends who are therapists that have gone through depressions, it's not like they were happy during it. But at least they had the skills to know that, hey, this is how it feels. You know, It's like when you go through a a depression and you start talking to other people who have been depressed before, they're like, yeah, that's how it feels. Yes, exactly. It's not like everybody has this mysterious set of symptoms. It's remarkably similar. People know exactly what you're talking about. They know techniques that can help you at least get enough energy to begin to claw your way out of it. You know which steps to take. So I, I wish people knew that before. Um, you know, it's 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 a lot like physical pain. You know, physical pain that you know is going to lift is incredibly comparatively, incredibly easy to manage. It's when you're not sure it's going to lift. You're not sure it's ever going to go away, which some chronic pain doesn't. That's when it becomes this
0: overwhelming shadow in your life. Um. So, yeah. Well, everything that you just said is, you know, a hundred percent evidence-based um, whether it's acceptance and commitment therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, we like to talk about how mood follows action. So you don't have to feel good to get going. You need to get going to give yourself a chance at feeling good, which is so counter to like the positive thinking in, in, you know, control your thoughts and give off positive energy. And just all of that is bullshit. Um, Particularly if you're going through a rough patch and um, often does more harm than good, because then you get into that state where you're judging yourself for not being able to think positive. Um, I also wonder if it's the kind of thing where you kind of have to go through it to know what it is, like as much education as you could give someone on what it feels like to be depressed. um, You know, I've written about it in terms of like, there's a river And when you're not depressed and you haven't been like you can look across the river and you can see people in the water and you can kind of like guess what it feels like, but until you've been on the other side of the river, you don't really know. And then once you've been on that other side of the river, the next time that depressive thought feeling, whatever cycle starts swirling, it still sucks. But since you've been there, you can kind of create like one degree of freedom between your awareness of what's happening and what's happening. And it just gets a little bit of easier. Um... You know, listeners of this show know, like I've, I went through a really rough period of obsessive compulsive disorder, secondary depression, and I get intrusive thoughts of like, life is meaningless, just kill yourself. And those thoughts would like, they would throw me off for a week. I'd just be in panic. And now my brain still serves up those thoughts every day. Like recovery from OCD isn't the elimination of those thoughts. It's now that I've experienced them, literally some of them, tens of thousands of times that I can just like wave at them and let them go by. And I think part of what makes any kind of mind-body system thing sticky is when it's new and then you start freaking out about it because it's new and it's the freaking out or the trying so hard to make it go away that often makes it more sticky. Um, And it's really, really, I think, I mean, I don't know. Yes, we could do more to educate people, but I think it's hard to know unless you've been there, which is why, and I'm sure you'd say this too, Dave, like the best advice is go find a therapist or a psychiatrist or someone that can kind of hold your hand When you're really in it and help you gain those skills to then get out of it
2: yeah no i mean you you definitely can't know what it's like you know i mean people who you know there's depressed and there's clinically depressed right so it's like one is like you're just sort of down and one is like you're convinced that the people around you would just be better off if you weren't around at all you know you're like a weight on the world or and yourself but i think just giving people a heads up that that's what it feels like and that it's not that it's partly physical and that it's um it does get better you know it can lift if you take the right steps um i think just offering that hope ahead of time maybe can give some benefits or here's 10 things to do when it hits you of course if you're you know if you've never been in this or that experience um you know but yeah like we were saying earlier so much of it is just not adding on right that the monster wants you to add on and pile on with it you know it's like oh man people were tortured at Abu Ghraib what right do I have to be upset about this you know and it's like that's just not the way human feelings work you know
0: dangerous um, game to play that yeah. like it could it could be worse you could be an orphan in Syria right now it could always yeah. be worse um, yeah. well listen we really appreciate you sharing all this and kind of going on this off-ramp um, because anytime someone that's really successful that's a role model opens up speaks about these challenges I think it just helps to to normalize them and to to give people hope and to show that you know hey there there is light on the other side and you just got to keep keep showing up. So, I will say to lighten things up, the reason I asked that question. This was is, light. What are you talking about? Come on. <laughs> where where I was going was and maybe let's not use the word depressed because I think I agree with you. There's depression which is like everything's meaningless always. So I'm going to use the word despair and this is going to be a segue into your your new book which we are so excited to to have people read. Please scream inside your heart. Breaking news and nervous breakdowns in the year that wouldn't end. And it's a book about 2020, and although 2021 feels like it's just marginally better, how do you not become despairing, covering Trumpism meets COVID, meets like just everything in 2020? I would take me an hour to go through the things that you've covered, and how do you keep such a light heart? And um, before before I dive in to let excuse me before I dive out and let you answer the question, I do want to dive into the light heart. Um and this is going to be a two part question because then I'm also going to ask you like how you write so creatively. So my favorite Dave Pell newsletter of all time, it's the one that I've probably forwarded to more people than any other email, was published on Tuesday, October twentieth. Do you know what I'm about to read, Dave? No. I've smoked so much pot in the
2: last thirty years I don't remember October twentieth anymore. Oh wait, Tuesday, October twentieth. Was that last year?
0: Yeah, October surprise.
2: Oh, I, oh, that's that one. I do remember. Yes. So my, this is my in the, mother this emailed is in, me about that. So yes, this is
0: in the, this is in the midst of Trumpism. You know, election frauds happening. COVID is out of freaking control. We are like deep in twenty twenty winter. I'm certainly feeling despair, and I get this. Apologies in advance, but I really need to get this out. Maybe we owe Jeffrey a debt of gratitude for Tubin in public. After all, isn't it nice to finally have a different dick in the news? Another jerk to circle, a stump without a speech, another apprentice to fire, a tower not named Trump, an attempted rub out not involving white supremacists, a non-political poll to analyze, and after six months, a reason to use wipes that doesn't involve a deadly virus. So, let's talk. How do you keep the levity, man? And 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 if we offended every anyone, I'm sorry, but like that that to me that phrase, that one sentence is probably the best creative work I came across in 2020. Oh, wow. That's uh, both sad and gratifying. Um yeah, I mean
2: I'm like a 2-year-old, so, you know, I think in dick jokes, so here was an opportunity to share some, you know. I don't know if there's some that crazy creative thing, you know, that I was, uh, gifted with or anything, but that was a funny and weird story. And, um, it's actually connected to some stories that are probably of 2020 that weren't that light, but, uh, that particular one, you know, was funny and ironic and crazy because of course at that point of the pandemic, every middle-aged man was basically either, uh, obsessing over the news or jerking off, right? Because we're all stuck at home and he just uh, Tubin just mixed the two, you know, he mixed the Zoom and the jerking off, which was, you know, obviously humiliating. But, uh, yeah, in terms of the levity, I mean, I just sort of think in jokes all the time. Um, so, I try to include those. In 2020, um, it had a uh, slightly more meaningful uh goal behind it because the news was so hard to take and i knew people were so overwhelmed including a lot of my friends who before 2020 really weren't even into the news at all didn't even really read my newsletter much honestly but got completely obsessed almost like i am about the news like millions of americans did during 2020 and people were getting bummed and depressed and i just feel you have to have a little bit of um sugar to make the medicine go down basically and that's really my brand um you know i i i try not to ever use use the humor to make light of a situation so if it's a serious situation the humor might be more satirical or biting but it's still um something that you think like hey there'll be a little bit of pleasure uh mixed in with the garbage and the news today um so that's definitely my brand that's my that's why i thought i was the right person to write the book honestly the book is sort of i mean it's it the hook is 2020 but it's really about our relationship with media it's about my parents warnings about where america was headed and it's about how close america got to the edge of losing our democracy and is still pretty close to that edge you know i think 2020 was the earthquake and 2021 is just a series of aftershocks related to that earthquake. Um, But it's hard to sit there and read that stuff. You know, maybe not for me. I'm into this stuff. When I was in high school, I had a friend, we used to talk about the American empire and what was going to cause it to, you know, slowly unravel or whatever, you know, I'm like, I think about this stuff since I was a kid uh, authoritarianism because of my parents. You didn't
0: (laughs) guess it was Donald Trump.
2: No, I definitely would not have guessed that. (laughs) Uh, But my parents are both Holocaust survivors. So we, I think about these global issues and geopolitics all the time. So for me, it's not that depressing, or not, I wouldn't say depressing, but I'm much more likely to pick up a nonfiction book by or read an article by somebody who's talking about our slide into authoritarianism or uh, our way from democracies and the dangers to the empire uh, than the average person probably. So what I want to do is take those kind of messages and lessons that I've learned from my life and deliver them with uh, personal voice and humor so that people can have a decent time. um being made aware of something really important. So that's sort of the brand of Next Draft, and that's even more so the brand of the book. Um, In terms of the question you asked before, how do you not become overwhelmed and just depressed, wallowing in the news? It's pretty interesting because um, I never got that question before 2020. And now that I've been out talking to people about my book and stuff, that's always a question I get and I get from people that I just meet or friends or whatever. Um so for those who think that somehow 2020 was just a little bit different than other years especially in terms of our relationship to the media um I use that as an example that it wasn't. This is what everybody's thinking, how can you be in that hell 24 hours a day? And the news has always not been great, right? But it was another order of magnitude for 2020. I actually feel I'm lucky in this area because when i read a news story i'm instantly professionalizing the experience so i'm reading a story even if it's horrible even if it's about covid even if it's about trump doing something that makes me furious uh i'm i have a split second where i have feelings maybe slide in but really i'm i'm immediately thinking what's my take going to be on this what am i going to write about this which version of this story is the best one to link to um, and because I get to professionalize the experience, it actually m- keeps the emotional impact of it at bay a bit um, because I have a job to do. I always tell people, my job is not to feel the news. My job is to make you feel it. Um, so I, there are moments when I think you should cry or when you should laugh and I write accordingly, but I'm not laughing or crying really myself. So in a way, that's partly probably just a personality trait that maybe I don't, uh, have as much, uh, I have empathy, but maybe I don't have as many emotional, uh, connections as some people, but it's mostly that I just have a thing to do. You know, I don't think that people that cover stories, uh, during live shots from fires or whatever are feeling a lot. They, because they have to report on that immediately, especially if there's news that people in the area need to know about. Um, So during 2020, I I noticed that a lot of my friends that weren't necessarily that into the news were actually uh, much more depressed and much more frazzled by that incoming uh, news than I was because of that, because they had nowhere to put it. They had nothing to do with it. That's not to say that it never got to me. I mean, of course, 2020, the news became personal. You know, it was in the air we breathed. So uh, you had your family stuff with COVID, you had uh, your rage and disappointment that we had a failed leader at a moment when we needed to be brought together. Uh, you had the outrage of the George Floyd thing. Um, you know, you had the buildup to the most anxiety inducing election, you know, in American history, probably the most important too, but definitely the most anxiety inducing. So, I won't pretend it didn't get to me, especially as I was writing the book, because, you know, in September, October, I was writing September, October, and I was also busy writing April, May in my book. So that's double the Trump. So I don't advise that. But uh, I did feel uh, at the core, there were a couple messages I had to get out. And, um, you know, my dad had been warning me for many years and he's far from a a liberal, he was, he passed away, but he's far from a liberal snowflake. He was like a, you know, he survived during the war because he got a gun. He, you know, killed a lot of people. He was probably a Republican for for most of his life here and an incredibly successful businessman. So anything but a hysterical sort of liberal. Uh, If I say in my newsletter, Hey, this is really dangerous and, there's some parallels between this and World War II, pre-World War II Germany. You just, you would rightfully slap your forehead and go, oh man, another liberal snowflake going crazy, which I did most of my life also when people would make comparisons to Nazism. It sort of was a, a an argument ender. It's like you just defeated your own argument. But when somebody like my dad, who was completely down to earth and completely matter of fact and the opposite of uh, hysterical in any way. Uh, his reaction to World War II and the Holocaust was to take action and to fight back, tells me that, you know, everybody keeps laughing at Trump. I got to tell you, when I was a little kid, everybody laughed at Hitler, too, and thought he was a big joke. Or if my dad tells me, hey, you know, a lot of the lines he's using in his speeches remind me a lot of the lines Hitler used uh, in the five years before the Holocaust started. And tells me, you know, he's never going to leave the White House. Even if he loses the election, he's going to deny it. He won't leave. People like this don't leave. And over and over, kept making predictions that were right and warning me about what was happening. I realized that uh, even if it depressed me to share the news, and of course it was repetitive and a nightmare for readers and me. You know, it wasn't fun covering that year. But I felt like I had to get that message out. You know, one moment really stood out the, right before the pandemic got really bad. Uh, We went out for our last lunch before the pandemic and we were walking to the restaurant and uh, my dad was just really furious that people weren't more taking to the streets. This is before the Black Lives Matter protests in protest of all the attacks on democracy taking place from within the White House. And he was bummed about it, you know, and mad about it. And I said, well, I think people in today's America, you know, they know it's bad, but they just don't think it can happen here, you know. And he like stopped on a dime and looked at me and said, do you think when I was a kid we thought what could happen there? And I just said, all right, I've, I have an audience of two from now on, my parents, and I have an ethical uh, responsibility and drive to share this message because it's coming from people who have seen it before and are just not at all hysterical about any of these issues are completely down to earth, you know? Um, so that, that also made it easier to keep motivated during 2020. Um, because I felt like that was an important thing to do. It hurt my brand for sure. Um, you know, lots of people who got sick of the Trump stuff, probably unsubscribed. You know, the number one question I or complaint I got during 2020 was, why do you keep covering just Trump news? Cover some other stories. This is getting, it's not what Next Draft used to be. And I'm like, you go on the web and find me some other stories. There are no other stories. Everybody is on this. The person who used to write about Secret Service is writing about Trump. The person who used to, you go to an, go to variety.com and they're writing about Trump impact on entertainment. Go to ESPN and they're writing about Trump's impact on the kneeling uh, story or, uh, you know, the NASCAR story. So, you know, it was the only story. So the question was, how are you going to cover it? And my choice was to cover it with enough humor to get people to open the newsletter, but not shying away one iota from what was happening to america or pretending that it was a political discussion when it was a democracy versus anti-democracy and a truth versus lies story and still is
1: so the easy decision in your spot coming into this trumpism authoritarian that you just talked about would be to just well you know if i go all in if I cover this to the way the way that I maybe feel like it I might lose subscribers I might lose this you know if you go back eight years on next draft I'm I'm imagining your readership is pretty diversified um how like what gives is it that personal connection or that moral calling or ethical calling that like allowed you to make that decision of like This is what's important. Like all that matters is I'm writing for myself and my dad. Like what's what was that like?
2: Yeah, it it was sort of a combination of the two things I mentioned. One was definitely not moral, but uh, one was ethical. I felt it was an important story to get out, and it was coming from a source that I was surprised to hear it from. And the other one was um, there really it was just tactical. There really was nothing else. So if you're, it would have been almost impossible, especially in 2020. Of course, in the three years prior, it wasn't quite as bad. But in 2020, there really was only the COVID BLM and Trump story. And Trump, of course, shadowed all of it. But there wasn't that much more to write about. But um, you really started to see a lot of journalists also get the story right in terms of stopping the false equivalence and stopping pretending that this is about GOP versus Democrat and that this is something much more dangerous. Um, so I wanted to amplify those voices also. Um, you know, and it definitely picked up in 2020. I will say like when I mean, my dad is a real estate. Was a real estate guy, and he so he always knew Trump was a con artist and a clown, and he was a common point of discussion even when I was a kid. Just look at how he pulls this one over on this person and that one over, and it's all leverage. It's all a house of cards, you know. So we talked about the business side. Real estate guys have always hated Donald Trump because they know what he's saying is all made-up nonsense, and that the Trump enterprise was just all built on leverage, right? So, but, you know, even when he was elected, I mean, my dad was depressed that, you know, that many Americans could look at this con artist, criminal liar and see a president, but he wasn't like, oh my God, the America is going to collapse or whatever. And my mom's reaction was, well, he, you know, ran as a terrible person, but this democracy and now we have to give him the chance to lead, you know, which interestingly is almost exactly what uh, Hillary Clinton said after the election. Um, it, it wasn't until we started to see the, um, I think, the combination of uh, external pressures on him and the internal pressures of his obvious flourishing mental illness uh, and malignant narcissism and many other things Um emerging that you could see the danger uh and the mix of things and the people that were enabling him not having a line, just never drawing a line. I never would have predicted that ever. Yeah. Um, you know, That's laws just went out the park. book. Yeah, it is. Uh, but you see it can happen here. You know, we learned it just did happen here. And it is happening here now. People are still uh, you know, upholding the big lie and uh Doing whatever they can do to uh gain uh the benefits of making him happy or whatever, whatever benefits there are left to that. Um so yeah, it's it was a sad, a sad year, but an eye-opening year, you know, to remind you it's like it's not like democracy was something you had to fight for for all of human history and now we no longer have to fight anymore. You know, there's so many things like that, I think, that people are seeing today, you know, so many fights that people thought were over actually, um, in their favor and that the other side was fighting all along. You know, we're definitely seeing that with um uh women's right to choose and Roe v. Wade, you know, I think most the average uh and it's probably seventy percent are probably in favor of Roe v. Wade, I think the average person uh in that boat just assumed that was done, man. That was like this is an argument about from the '70s. We're moving forward, you know.
0: So um, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna interject and zoom us out sure. just a little, because I, sure. I, I mean, no, this is great, and our politics are aligned with yours. And I think the way that you said, like, this isn't a Republican Democrat thing. This is like a democracy anti-democracy thing. And if that happens over the next couple of years to continue to fall among partisan lines, well, then you're going to have the democracy party and the anti-democracy party, and that will be terrible for this country. And everything that you're saying about like your dad's wisdom that this is real and this isn't something to laugh at is spot on. My question is, is there any going back to news as it was before? And I'm going to reference a book. It's one of the most popular podcasts that we ever did. So we're like a Performance, you know, mental health, science of success show. But we did a a review of Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which I'm sure that you're familiar with. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty good year for the media, 2020. They got a lot of clicks. I mean, Trump sold. Right. And now, talk about like the addiction to relevance. If you want to get a bunch of followers on Twitter, you know, something about Trump, it's going to sell. And, I feel like the, the, the media in general and how they cover this particular thing is stuck between a rock and a hard place, because I don't think it makes sense to totally ignore the thing because it's not going away. But the flip side is, the, like it, it became codependent with the thing in some ways. And I wonder now how much of the coverage is like, are we ever going back to a world where it's non-hyperbolic coverage because hyperbolic coverage sells? And does that then kind of perpetuate the thing?
2: Yeah, well, there's no doubt um, the media had a role in the Trump era and that we as news consumers had a role in the Trump era. Um, and our relationship with media uh, is pretty unholy. And that that's a big part of the book. And I try to give the perspective. I'm like the ombudsman for people instead of the, for the newspaper. Uh, I'm, I'm not a journalist. I'm sort of uh, just the most addicted of the news consumers. So I've thought about it a lot um you know one thing is definitely it was great for the news business the trump era not only did they have a ton of clicks and make a ton of revenue and benefit in a lot of other ways but also it just created hundreds and hundreds of media stars you know um and you know tens of media brands really were built on the back of that and brands that we know and love you know um and many of those sites and brands are suffering or at least getting way fewer um, clicks and views. And they're much less relevant as news viewership has dropped off pretty dramatically. Um, I think there's different types of media. There's sort of cable news and uh, what people try to get going on Twitter. And then there's sort of print news or what we'd call print news like New York Times, Washington Post. Most of those sites are covering a wide variety of stories still uh they don't do a perfect job but they're trying to do a decent job um and they're working with an established set of facts the big problem in our divide is that you have another news universe that calls itself a news universe and i really wouldn't call them news but they're uh operating with whatever lies um will stir up outrage um And increase their viewership. So they're sort of playing outside the rules of traditional news, which I might write a story a little more entertaining or salaciously in order to get traffic. Whereas I'm just going to make stuff up based on whatever people like to hear the most, you know? And that's the big benefit of fake news is that you can test what people want to hear and then you tell them what they want to hear. And what could be an easier sell than that? Um, You know, that's Trump's whole thing with birtherism when he was running for president. He tried a million messages the birtherism one caught on and he went a hundred percent with it, you know, and it worked. So, or it was one of the things that got him on the map for sure. Um, so yeah, there's there's different parts of the news. There's also the cable news angle is that cable news found out during the first Gulf War and during the OJ trial and a few other events that having one news story to cover twenty four seven was really the best model for them because they got great viewership. People could tune in at any time of the day and they'd be already familiar with all the characters and what was going on. And you know, most times in most eras, that was pretty harmless. We didn't get enough. Important news, and we got too much news about some comparatively trivial things. But not that the Gulf War was, but other things. And uh, but during the Trump era, it became much more um, of a serious matter. And you know, even before Trump won uh, his election, most of the cable networks were twenty four seven on Trump. And worse than just being 24-7 on Trump and the unistory trend was that they weren't actually doing news. They were just doing panels and discussions about the news. It was almost like a mirror of Twitter. Um, So what that does is the problem with that, in addition to not providing people with news and telling people what they want to hear and stirring up outrage, it also broadens the definition of what news is and it allows companies like Fox and Newsmax to define themselves as news because that's what they're doing too. They're just showing a bit of a speech and then having four people discuss it for the next half hour and calling that tonight's news, you know. Um, so that that stuff I find to be really damaging. I'm a little less concerned about the way that the uh, press covers stuff. Um, but I do think They had too much false equivalence during 2020, and in an effort to fend off uh, the claims that they're so liberally biased, they went overboard not using the word lie, uh, not telling what behind closed doors they knew what was happening in terms of risks to our democracy and stuff like that. I think they've gotten better on that. Um, and I think a lot of journalists obviously did an incredible job under very difficult circumstances in 2020. But um, I do think the early attacks on the media by Trump were both calculated and quite effective, even at getting the um, you know anti-Trump or pro-democracy media, whatever, the actual media, um, not to be quite as hard on him as they should have given the facts as they were rolling out. One thing I really like to tell people, though, as they consume the news, and it might sound hypocritical coming from a person who both reads it all day and shares it all day, is that, um, you know, news is a product like any other product. So, you know, Facebook is currently getting a lot of heat for having an algorithm that uh, creates outrage and tries to keep you engaged all day. Well, the news sites have the exact same goal. You know, Netflix has the exact same goal. Every internet company has the exact same goal. It's just that Facebook is the biggest and the best at it and probably a little bit more nefarious than some of the others. But there is an irony about news sites and specifically cable news shows, you know, criticizing Facebook for stirring up outrage for financial gain, right? That's what they do. That's their business model. So the difference between Facebook and news is that we have sort of this feeling that news is somehow intrinsically valuable that there is something um, more uh, wholesome about reading the news than watching reality TV or reading the news than, you know, wasting your time doing some other television show or whatever activity. And it's true that there is a benefit to having a well-informed republic, but it's not – but that that idea of news and its intrinsic value is a marketing – message created by the news industry and news brands it's not didn't come out of the ether and yes we should be well informed but we defeated authoritarianism uh in the 40s with one newspaper a day we can do it again in 2021 with one news check a day the idea that you need to be notified on your phone about uh mudslide in peru or something that biden said or uh you know, almost anything other than the giant score or something happening within 18 feet of you, you know, you don't need to be notified. You're not Batman. You know, what are you going to do? Well, that's
0: it? that's the service that you provide for me. I mean, for real, like I, I just read Next Draft. And then if there's something I'm particularly interested in or I want to learn more about I click the link. But I don't visit. Maybe I'll go to New York like a couple times a week or Wall Street But I don't really do that anymore. Um, so. You know, we're, a, a plug not only for the book, but, but for Dave's newsletter. But I know Steve had a question about book writing, since that's something that we've both done too much of.
1: Yeah. No, I was just going to ask, since Brad and I are obviously writers. Um, to wonder, you know, you're used to putting out a newsletter five days a week, which is like a modern version of a column. Um, how did your writing process differ? when you have this extended, you know, long-term, no daily deadline book that you had to, uh, had to get out there and make sense of.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I had a pretty short time to write the book, which was pretty probably good. Uh, cause we wanted to get it out sometime this year, which apparently I've learned in the publishing industry is a short time frame. So, uh, that was sort of lucky um at the beginning i would um sort of write at night and say like okay after everybody goes to bed i'll go through and i was lucky because i had an outline for uh the book is broken up into these sort of essays called news breaks and then a monthly look at what we experience and then with you know a lot of personal takes and analysis but um I had an outline for the book, which was next draft. So that gave me sort of a starting point. And then, um, but I wasn't getting, wasn't being that efficient with that model. So what I did instead was I just tacked it on to um, when I was writing next draft. So I was already in the flow. Um, you know, I usually wake up and have coffee and do next draft or whatever. And I don't really eat anything until later in the day uh, after I'm done so i just started doing that basically i just said okay during this part where i'm sort of light and not uh carb down or whatever and i'm in the flow i'll just do a few pages right after i do um right after i do next draft and then i had my same friend you know who proofs my blurbs would look at that also so it was sort of like hey anything new today you know whatever so that was helpful also um so yeah, I sort of just extended the next draft process. That was my my way of doing it. But I think it's pretty similar with writers who say, "Oh, I get up at eight and I do n words or whatever." Um, I wasn't necessarily that strict about it, but um, yeah, it just would depend on the day, what I was, which part of the book. Some parts of the book are like more like essays, so I'd really have to. It'd be sort of silly to try to not do it at once for me, my style. So that might take a few hours, whereas another day, I might just only do an hour and do a few blurbs about what happened in May or whatever.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny how consistent that is amongst a lot of writers. And it's not necessarily the morning, but you know, the, the coffee empty stomach, like for all the nonsense about a ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting or whatever, like the one benefit it has is it it seems to be good to write when you're a little bit hungry like I've never met a writer if it's like I have a big breakfast and then I sit down to write. Um, so maybe the real benefit of intermittent fasting <laughs> is, that, uh, is that it helps you it helps you produce words on a page. So one last question before we wrap it up. This has been such a great far-reaching discussion. And my guess is it's the question that's on all listeners' mind. It's on my mind. Steve just texted me. It's on his mind. Do you ever turn it off? Like can your brain turn it off? Um,
1: And let me me even be more
0: clear. No, I think you know what I'm saying, but like, are you, is there such a thing as leisure or work and life? Or are you constantly seeing something and immediately in your head, you're picturing the paragraph you're going to write or the pun that you're going to lead with in your, your headline?
2: No, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm that way. Um, definitely from like nine to noon when I'm writing it. But, uh, no, unless there's a very unusual ex- uh, circumstance, like a Super Bowl, the Oscars, a debate that everybody's watching, and I know everybody's going to try to have their catchy headline the next day and their catchy take. I almost never am planning that stuff ahead. Um, so yeah, no, I have a lot of leisure time, and I, as much as I like the internet, I probably love television even more. So uh, yeah, like. Uh, I definitely was not thinking about the news when Succession came back the other night, um, and I was not thinking about the news at all during the Giants any Giants game that I watched uh, during twenty twenty one during their race with the Dodgers and or the playoffs when I was at those games. You know, so there's different, uh, definitely different activities that when I'm doing them, I'm not thinking at all about any of this stuff. It was harder in twenty twenty certainly because. So many things got taken away from us. So there were no sports. There were no movies. There was no driving the kids to school, you know. But yeah, when I'm fighting to get my kids out of bed in the morning or whatever to go to school, I'm definitely not thinking about the news. Um, and I also uh, – I mentioned Howard Stern earlier. You know, That's also my escape. I am like a habitual, for better or worse, habitual Howard Stern listener. So um, I, I do that too, and it's like complete – I mean – oddly enough a lot of the issues And the politics are exactly the same about the anti vaxxers and all this stuff and but generally it's more just stupid humor that uh breaks me away from that stuff so yeah i i am definitely able to get out of it the um the idea that i'm always reading news or always absorbing news is slightly a uh you know maybe a branding position but i'm i'm i'm, I'm pretty normal otherwise and i was a thousand times more stressed at the uh, last game between the Giants and the Dodgers during the playoffs than I've ever been reading a news story. So yeah, I have normal human emotions also.
1: (laughs) Oh, love it. Dave, I just want to thank you from Brad and myself uh, for this conversation, this wide-ranging conversation. Uh, Thank you for being so open uh, to share your experiences, uh, both from a mental health standpoint, but also give us a look behind next draft newsletter for listeners please check out Dave's new book pre-order it now please scream inside your heart breaking news and nervous breakdowns in the in the year that wouldn't end comes out in the beginning of november you can order it right now so grab your copy and once again dave thanks so much for taking your time really invo- valuable insight for us and i know our listeners will enjoy it
2: all right. Well, thanks a lot for having me on. It was fun and interesting.
0: Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast is this goes a long way in helping it reach others.